You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As I said earlier, my name is Nathan, and uh, the reason I'm still on the stage this morning is because uh, today I have the distinct privilege of preaching as we study God's Word together. If you've been a part of our gathered worship uh, for the last couple of years or for a little while, I may be a little bit familiar to you, and that's because I usually have the privilege of serving with the other musicians on the stage. I'm I'm a musician, and so I usually get to serve in that context, and I want to say a little bit about that, because week after week, I am so blessed. I am so blessed to really be in the best seat in the house to hear you pour out your hearts as you lift your voices up to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. I'm so blessed to hear your, your worship, and I, know, I hope you know what an encouragement it is to your brothers and sisters even around you that we meet each week and that we lift up our voices in song. This is the beauty of community, and there is something that happens when we gather together. We lay down our pride and our individualism, and we recognize that who, he who has called us has called us to be part of a family. And somehow, by grace, he even stands among us and embodies and enables and receives our worship as we give it to him. We are not alone. So if you come on a given week and you're feeling downcast, if you're brokenhearted, I know you too have been encouraged by the heartfelt singing and the soul-stirring worship of your brothers and sisters among you in these rows of chairs. And that's my personal word of thanks to you this morning. And it brings me to another word of thanks, and that is to thank Pastor Jonathan. Now, for what exactly? Well, where do I even begin? Maybe first by just thanking him for his obedience to God's call on his life and his life of his family to come to this obscure town on the frozen tundra. It's not frozen right now, but give it a few months. To come to this part of the world and declare the gospel, the gospel, the gospel again and again. If you're like me, you've been blessed by Pastor Jonathan's preaching. And even, by the way, he and his family have dedicated themselves to a gospel-centered culture. Specifically in the context of our church community, so many beautiful relationships and friendships have been instrumental and they influence and positively influence the culture of our church. So even while Pastor Jonathan and his family are away, they're enjoying some time away from their routine labors for the gospel, I am immensely grateful to him for his work and for his service, and I'm humbled to preach this week even in in his absence. So as we prepare our hearts to meditate together on God's word, let us bow for a moment of prayer. Lord, it is good that you have called us into community. It is such a blessing to be a part of your body, the church. In your perfect design, you have created us to experience life together and even to build up one another in the faith. And God, we praise you that you have given us to us, your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would open our eyes and open our hearts to hear your word. We pray this morning that yours would be the words we would hear and yours alone. We come to you, Father, knowing that you are good 
And in your goodness, you love to give those things for which we ask. And we know this because you did not even spare your son to provide the atoning sacrifice we so desperately need. So very expectantly, Father, we pray and trust in you for wisdom, understanding, and the grace that only you can provide. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we begin our time together, I want, you to, I want to invite you to open up a Bible. You can look at a Bible in the row in front of you, underneath one of the chairs in front of you. This morning, we're in the book of Psalms. We're continuing our study in the book of Psalms. And this morning, we're looking at Psalm 57. So go ahead and turn there for a moment. I'm going to take a drink of water. I caught a little bit of that summer gunk. And so you'll bear with me as I sound maybe a bit nasally or as if I ingest and I, or if I inhale and I feel the rattling in my lungs, you'll show me your grace through that. <clears throat> but Psalm 57, you may turn there this morning. We will read together all the verses of Psalm 57. So let's read together. To the choir master, according to do not destroy a mitcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. I will... I'm sorry, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. This concludes our reading of God's Word. This morning, as we begin our exposition of Psalm 57, this may be a bit uncomfortable, but I want to invite you in to a place of stillness and quiet. I want to invite you into a place of shadows and silence. Imagine with me, and this may take some imagination, so go ahead and 
Close your eyes if you have to, but imagine with me that you find yourself in the very same place we meet David at the beginning of this psalm, in the cave, in the cave. If you've ever been to a cave or if you've ever toured a cave, perhaps your experience is similar to mine. When I was young, I had the chance to, I got to visit a, a cave that was a popular tourist attraction. It was called Talking Rocks Cavern. And I remember so vividly as a, as a kid begging my parents and my, my cousins begging my aunt and uncle, please let us go to Talking Rocks Cavern. Please take us to Talking Rocks Cavern. Don't you want to go to Talking Rocks Cavern? What does that mean? Do we hear rocks talk? Please take us. Well, we were pretty convincing. So my parents and my aunt and uncle, they took us kids to Talking Rocks Cavern, and we joined the tour. And while we were on the tour, the tour guide took everyone into this big room in the cave, really high ceiling. And we were on a bit of an outcropping, and beneath our feet we could see this pool, and there was light reflecting off the pool. There's lights that were in the cave. And you could see the stalactites and the stalagmites and, and the beauty of the formations in the cave. And he announced it before he did it, but it still seemed quite sudden when the tour guide turned off the lights. And just like that, the complete darkness, it became impossible to see. I waved my hand in front of my face, and even after waiting for a few moments for my eyes to adjust, complete darkness. I'd never been in that dark of a room. I couldn't see an inch away from my face. Just darkness. And the rocks? They didn't talk. <laughs> Just silence. Just darkness. Just silence. And I want to invite you into this silence and amid these shadows because they serve as the context from which David gives us Psalm 57. You know, if the Psalms teach us anything, they teach us it's good, it's okay, and they teach us how to be honest about our circumstances. We see here that David is honest about his circumstances. He doesn't make light of them. He doesn't cover them up. Yet despite his dire situation, despite his grave peril, despite his intense suffering, the theme he returns to again and again in this psalm, you see it there in the chorus, is the glory of God. And specifically in Psalm 57, the glory of God in suffering, in suffering. So that will be our theme that we will keep in mind as we study this text together, the glory of God in suffering. So this morning, I want to look specifically at verses 1 through 5. That's part 1 of the psalm. You see it's broken up into two parts by the chorus. We'll look at verses 1 through 5, part 1, this week. And Lord willing, we'll continue our study in verses 6 through 11 next week. But looking at verses 1 through 5, I want to focus on four specific points. And those points are these. One, the peril. Two, the hiding place. Three, the promises, and four, the glory of God overall. In verse 1, David describes his peril as the storms of destruction. Now, living in the Midwest, we're pretty familiar with destructive storms. 
or really anyone across the world. We have enough context. We know a lot about destructive storms. We've seen the destructive power of nature. But I want to come back to that. Because David elaborates further in verse 3 when he personifies his peril. He actually gives it a person. He calls him, him who tramples on me. I want to come back to that too. We look finally, he gives metaphors for this person or these people when he refers to them in verse 4 as lions and fiery beasts. Lions and fiery beasts. I just love that imagery. It's so vivid. It makes me think of Daniel in the lion's den. And I think that's the sovereignty of God at work here. I think that's the repetitive nature of redemptive history. That even then David, in some small way, can even prefigure the experiences of the prophet Daniel. Because in, in, in a very similar way, David is being chased down, persecuted, just like Daniel was, by the king. Falsely accused and persecuted by the king. And so, you know, so many of the experiences of David in the Psalms become fuller and richer, the experiences, and find their fulfillment in Jesus. But maybe in some small way, David is even prefiguring the experience of the prophet Daniel in this verse. But he's pursued by the king, just like Daniel was pursued and, and, and falsely accused and, and punished by the king. And we, we know that by looking at the inscription we read at the beginning of this psalm, because it says it was written by David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, scholars don't know for sure, but they seem to think that the cave being referenced here was the cave at Adullam. And David at the cave of Adullam is recounted for us in 1 Samuel 22. Now, you don't need to turn with me, or you don't need to turn to, Psalm, uh, for, to 1 Samuel 22. I, I can give a brief summary of what we read there, and even in this preceding chapters, it's already kind of a little bit of a brief story. But in 1 Samuel 17 is where we see David and Goliath. David defeats the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And not long after that, he begins to gain the favor, the acclamation, the adoration of, of the peoples. So much so, and King Saul finds out it's even more praise and more adoration and more acclamation than he himself is getting. And so King Saul grows very intensely jealous of David to the point where he even attempts to kill David more than once. So, you know, David didn't want to get killed, so he fled from Saul in secret. But the whole time he was on the run, the whole time he was being hunted by the most powerful person in the land, King Saul. So we can keep this in mind when David describes the storms of destruction. Like I said earlier, we're pretty familiar with destructive storms, right? When the clouds roll in, the sky goes dark, the wind picks up, the lightning flashes, and the hail destroys everything in its path. Or even just think back a few weeks ago to the great Sioux Falls derecho of May 12. <laughs> For so many people, that is a storm they will never forget. I talked to so many people who were caught up in that storm who were genuinely afraid for their lives. It left a lasting impression. They'll never forget it. That storm was just so big, so ominous, so unlike anything we'd ever seen. And nature is so unpredictable that it almost seems that nothing else in all of the world can make us feel more small and vulnerable than a destructive storm. And that's how David describes his peril. He's being hunted by the sovereign king of an entire nation who could and did destroy anyone who gave him shelter. 
David's circumstances really were that dark. He really was in that much danger. So he went to the cave at Agilom to take refuge in this hiding place. But as we can see in the first verse, the cave was not truly David's hiding place. David's hiding place was God himself. We read in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Never once in the entire psalm, except for the inscription that we see at the beginning of the psalm, never once does David call this cave his hiding place. Even though while he was there, his family came to him, a band of others gathered around him, they supported him. But the cave is not David's refuge. God is his refuge. Don't you hear the echoes of Psalm 46? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You hear the echoes of Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. God may provide a physical dwelling place. It's true. God may provide a physical dwelling place. He may provide a physical fortress for earthly protection. But the dear refuge of our weary souls must be none other than God himself. God himself. David continues this poetic imagery in Psalm 57 by saying, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Not the shadows of the cave, the shadow of the wings of God. Such a gentle image here. The images of God as a mother hen stretching out her wings, protecting, covering up her little chicks, guarding them watching over them. This is the comfort to which God's people are invited and our true place of refuge amid all life's storms. Now, this is where I have a confession to make. I don't know the storms that surround you day in and day out. I don't know the peril that chases you down and makes you feel powerless. I don't know the suffering that is a daily and tangible reality. Maybe it's even sin, and the suffering is of your own making. But I know that the suffering is real, and God knows that it's real, and he doesn't want you to minimize it. Like David does in the Psalms, God wants you to call it for what it is, be honest about it, but he wants you to bring it to him. He not only invites you, he tells you to bring it to him because he's the very same God that gave his only son so that no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck you from his hand. Friends, if you are in Christ, the shed blood of your Savior has bought you, it's paid for all your sins, and you made you the adopted son or daughter of the king. You're his Why would we ever turn to any other refuge or any other shelter other than the loving care of God the Father, the outstretched arms of God the Son, and the abiding and personal presence of God the Holy Spirit? Why would we ever look to any earthly or temporary hiding place when the only one with the words of life is our gentle and lowly Savior who says to his own disciples, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who doesn't want true rest? 
Who doesn't want a perfect and lasting hiding place for their soul? And all we have to do is look to Jesus? It sounds so simple. And yet, how often do we seek other shelter? Thank God that Jesus endured every kind of temptation yet did not sin. Yet he faced the most intense suffering imaginable, yet did not scorn the shame of the cross. Praise God that Jesus defeated the powers of sin, death, and hell when he rose from the grave so that by grace through faith in him, those very same powers would be powerless over you and me, even though that's what we deserve. How glorious is that? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In suffering? Really? Yes. When we hide in Him and when we trust in His promises. Let's look at God's promises described by David here in verses 2 and 3. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David refers to God here as God most high. In verse 2, you see that God most high. Now in Hebrew, the name, that name for God is Elohim Elion. And in English, we hear that name, God Most High, and to our sensibilities, we think of God as being very high above us, right? Maybe that kind of conveys to us how big God is, like from horizon to horizon, like the sky, so big. And I think that's, that's good. That's an okay thing for our sensibilities. But the biblical scholars, and I, I agree, the biblical scholars seem to think that something else is going on here when David refers to God as God Most High. So what do they see? Well, the first place that we see the title given to God as God Most High is in Genesis 14. Now, this is more than a weird piece of Bible trivia, but if you want to keep it as that, that's fine. You know what? Mark it down. Genesis 14 is the first place we see the title given to God, God Most High. You win the prize. <laughs> but what happens in, in Genesis 14? Well, in Genesis 14, we meet Abram who became Abraham, the patriarch, the father of God's people. And in Genesis 14, we meet Melchizedek, the king priest of the city of Salem, who comes out, he rides out to meet with Abram after Abram has defeated his enemies. Now, Melchizedek is kind of this shadowy figure who doesn't get a whole lot of press coverage in the Old Testament, but he takes, the author of Hebrews takes a lot more time with Melchizedek in, in the New Testament and the reason is because he compares Jesus to Melchizedek in so many different ways. I mean, who else do we know is a king and a priest? A king priest and the city of Salem was a nuclear form, kind of a nuclear Jerusalem. So the king priest of the city of God, and he rides out and he prays a blessing over Abram and offers to Abram bread and wine. So you can see why the author of Hebrews takes so much time with Melchizedek. But I'm getting distracted here. What's the connection between Genesis 14 and Psalm 57? Well, the connection that David is making when he refers to, to God as God most high is that he's trusting in the very same promise and blessing as the blessing that is offered by this king and priest of the city of God to Abram to deliver his enemies into his hands. 
And what kind of deliverance is this? Well, it's the kind of deliverance that is so miraculous, so otherworldly, there's nothing else on earth like it, that it has to come from heaven, a heavenly deliverance. He will send from heaven and save me. Not only that, he will put to shame him who tramples on me. This is the promised victory in which David trusts. And friends, it's the promised victory in which we hope and we have already received in Jesus. The seed of the gospel that was planted in Genesis 3 was that our Savior would come and reconcile us back to a beautiful, perfect, sweet relationship with God the Father, our Creator, that though sin had made us enemies of God, God himself would provide a savior, and his heel would be bruised. Yes, we see that bruising at the cross. But in rising from the grave, our great savior crushed the head of that wicked serpent, Satan, and now him who tramples on me is trampled underfoot. And we who were God's enemies, as the apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, now have peace with God by faith through grace. We read this as our assurance of pardon just last week from Romans 5, and I apologize, this isn't on the screen, but Romans 5, 1 and 2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, since by faith, through God's grace, it is just as if we had never sinned, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do you catch the glimpse of the glory of God here? That God glorifies himself by saving his people to his own favor, and God glorifies himself by destroying his enemies. And maybe the most unthinkable paradox of all is that the grace, that his grace would turn even those of us who were former enemies of God, you and me, into his own people. As the old hymn says, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. He yielded his life and atonement for sin. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sin and he opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord and let the peoples rejoice indeed. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In suffering, yes, when we hide in him, when he is our refuge and strength, and when he redeems us from sin and death and even uses the death of Christ to put death to death. This is true glory. But as we, as we shared earlier, in the face of our circumstances, our circumstances will rear their ugly heads. This is such good news. This is so glorious. But our circumstances will rear their ugly heads. I don't know. It's going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this coming week. So is this all just happy talk? So we've mentioned earlier, suffering is all around us. Let's be honest. There is some suffering that looks as though it makes no sense. 
It looks as if there is no possible way that God could be glorified in the sick, grotesque suffering we endure or observe in this world. It's all around us, whether it's mass shootings, earthquakes, famines, whether it's cancer or a sudden death that does the unthinkable, causes parents to have to bury their own children or makes children face a life without mom or dad. The suffering is just so deep, it forces us to ask the question, if God will truly be glorified amid suffering, will we ever know exactly how? And I'll be honest and say, I don't know. I'd love to think so, but I don't know that even when our faith becomes sight and we meet our Savior face to face, that we will then have a perfect understanding of God's will. Or maybe instead, in His presence, in the presence of His beauty, His majesty, and wisdom, our present sufferings will so much pale in comparison that they will be overwhelmed by His glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, unseen, are eternal. Maybe someday we will gain a full understanding of all the different ways God used suffering for His glory. Or maybe in the words of Psalm 46, all we will be able to do is be still and know that He is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Perhaps, standing before the presence of our Lord, we will simply say something like the words we will sing in a moment, Redeemer, my healer, Lord Almighty, Defender, my Savior, You are my King. The hymn writer A.R. Cousin puts it this way. When she anticipated her eternal life in the presence of Jesus, she said, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. That is, she believes glory, the glory of grace of Jesus, will be all she will be able to comprehend. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the Lamb in, is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. We may not fully understand exactly how our present sufferings and trials are for the glory of God. But we do know that Jesus endured more suffering than any of us will ever know on this side of the grave And he did it for the glory of God. He did it to put an end to sin and suffering and death and to destroy those storms of destruction, to trample underfoot him who tramples on me and to provide for us an eternal refuge in and with God himself. May we trust in the victory we already have in Jesus as well as the one that is to come because it's all for God's glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you. We worship you because you are our true hiding place amid all life's storms. 
We glorify you, Father, because your steadfast love and your faithfulness have rescued us from the enemies of sin and death. We praise you because you have been and you always are and you always will be our refuge for our weary souls. Father, we thank you that the victory is won for us in Jesus, that your presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit, is here with us, among us. You have called us your children. You have adopted us as your sons, and you have purchased for us the ability to call us, to call you our Father. We thank you that we have hope even amid our sufferings. We praise you that it is for your glory. We pray that you would help us to even see, to experience tastes and glimpses of your glory here. All of these things we ask and pray in the powerful name, anticipating what you will do in our lives and among us through the work of Jesus. In his name, amen.